0: Welcome to the Calvary Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Episcopal Church. The Calvary Podcast is weekly sermons, but also conversations, reflections, and provocations about the mystery of God and what it means to be human in the world in need of repair.
1: Hi, I'm Paul McLean. I'm Associate Rector at Calvary Episcopal Church in Memphis, and uh, this is another in our podcast series. We've been interviewing uh, some of our Lenten Preaching Series speakers that were not able to join us due to the second half of the series being canceled because of the coronavirus. And among those is, uh, was David Waters, who we were all looking forward to. David is Assistant Director of the Institute for Public Service Reporting at the University of Memphis. He retired last year from the Commercial Appeal, where he was a longtime religion and education reporter, along with a lot of other duties there. And uh, he's been a columnist recently for the Daily Memphian and uh, was actually the religion editor for the Washington Post in years past. So he's had quite an interesting life. David has always been a great friend to Calvary and to really all the faith church and faith communities in Memphis. He's also a big fan of our fish pudding at Waffle Shop. And David, I'll start out. I'm sorry you missed out on that
2: (laughs) this season. Well, I'm sorry I missed the fish and the waffles, but uh, to be honest, uh, I'm not... That sorry that I didn't get to preach at Calvary. I was really looking forward to it, and I was honored to be considered. But it was a little intimidating. I've been there many times as a person in the pews and a reporter in the pews. But The thought of getting up there and speaking in the the same place, Marcus Borg and Barbara Brown Taylor and Micah Greenstein. And, oh, my gosh, I mean, it's just, you know, I actually asked to, to speak on April 1st that was my date that I was supposed to speak. And I asked for that date. number one, because that was my grandfather's birthday and it's always meant a lot to me. But number two is because I, I really wanted to get up there and say, this is not an April fool's joke.
1: <laughs> oh, I don't, you would have been great. And, and, uh, you're right. It is a, a bit of an intimidating pulpit to step into. And, and, oh, uh, uh, but at the same time, the, the people of Calvary, as you know, are, are, uh, have been very forgiving to us preachers and, and have been very uh, <laughs> uh, generous. And, and what's amazing uh, for preachers is, uh, and probably for newspaper writers too, is people pick up a little something in the article or the sermon that you thought was a throwaway line or transition mm-hmm. line. And that was the line that made the whole difference in their week. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or, right. or gave them maybe uh, in your case, maybe insight into the story in a way that you didn't expect.
2: <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. That happens all the time in writing too, though. Yeah. the lines you least expect to have an impact seem to have the most impact for some
1: reason. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I wanted to begin by, by asking the question I, I've done one, one other of these. And my, my, first question, I feel like maybe the, the question right now uh, is first of all, how are you and those you love faring during this time? We've been into this, it seems like forever, but it's uh two months now. Uh, uh, in terms of a lot of self-quarantining or uh, safe at home, whatever term you want to use. How has that been for you and your, your family, your loved ones? And, and how are you all faring health-wise and otherwise?
2: Well, so far, we're all good. All of my family, uh, extended family, close family is all healthy and safe. And uh, we're being careful. Uh, my mother lives with us. She's 81 and she's doing really well. And good. We don't want to take any chances with her. She's had a few health issues in the past and the kids have been great. Everybody's been great. It's, it's been difficult. My wife is a educator, so it's been uh, complicated for her to work from home online, especially with the, uh, the kids and teachers she works with. A lot of the kids in her school do not have access to wifi or internet. Oh, so that's made it really challenging for her, but I've been working from home for several years. So I'm really used to it. It hasn't okay. been much of a change for me.
1: Right. Right. But the
2: world is, uh, it's it's just so strange. I know everybody feels like this is some kind of a dream or maybe a nightmare. Yeah. It doesn't seem real. But in some ways, it's been kind of nice because things have slowed down so much.
1: Right. right. I think everybody. we've
2: all needed that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. One of the stories, obviously, the, the you and the media have been covering, and we've all been we in the faith community we've been following, is the the climate crisis. And everyone said if uh, one of the a little nice byproducts of this has been a lack of a little more lack of pollution. Uh, so at least here in Memphis, we've been blessed with a spring for the first time in a while that we can get out and enjoy it. Yeah. The weather's been spectacular. Yeah, Yeah. We're blessed. Yeah. Well, I, I, uh, I saw you on newsmakers on WKNO a couple of weeks ago, and I was really struck by one thing that you said about when looking at the pandemic story, but really looking at any major story, is how that you see a longing for context and that often that's missing in journalism today. You hearkened me back to a memory of mine. You you mentioned uh, how we all looked years ago to weekly news magazines like Time Newsweek. And my dad was a subscriber to the third one, U.S. News and World Report. And I remember as a teenager, I couldn't wait till that U.S. News and World Report came in. And all the Mm -hmm. stories I'd heard Tom Brokaw or whoever, Dan Rather or whoever talk about on the evening news that us news and world report seemed to put those stories like you were saying into context, into a a hole that I could really understand and get a grasp around the story. I wanted to see, you know, what do you see anyone nationally who's doing a good job of that right now? And and I know the daily Memphian and your Institute are struggling with how to do that as well. Uh, how's that coming? And, and on the demand side, are there folks still longing for context?
2: Well, I hope so. I, I I certainly think that they are. Um, you know, I think one of, the, one of the casualties of the change to digital and the Internet and World Wide Web and social media has been the loss of that sort of contextual perspective-based reporting that you used to get all the time, not only in news magazines, but even in uh, most newspapers and even on some uh, television broadcasts, like shows like 60 Minutes still do some of that. But I think we've lost a lot of that. And I think it's just a, a factor of everything is so immediate now. Social media makes everything, you know, everything comes to your pocket. Any, anything you want, you can get it just by reaching in your pocket and pushing a few buttons. And you get instant news and instant reaction and reaction to the reaction. And Twitter and Facebook and, and all of the social media platforms have made reactions sort of the currency of the times. Everybody's reacting to everybody's others, everybody else's reactions. Mm -hmm. And there doesn't seem to be a lot of time to sort of take a step back, take a breath and reflect instead of just react. And I think that's also been one of the casualties uh, of the loss, the, the slow decline of newspaper reporting across the country, especially in local markets like Memphis. When I started working at the Commercial Appeal in the early 1980s, Uh, Through the 1990s, we we had as many as 200 local journalists working full-time for the commercial appeal. And now the commercial appeal is probably down to fewer than 25 or so full-time. And then if you add the Daily Memphian, there's another 25 or 30. We're still way under the number we used to have covering this entire community. And the community continues to grow, not just in numbers, but in complexity. So you've got many fewer people, not only filling daily newspapers still at the commercial appeal, but also filling the internet and social media, not just daily, but hourly. And there's such a demand, there's such a hunger for more and more, new and new, faster and faster all the time. Everything's measured in clicks now. And so the sooner you can get information up on your website or on your social media page, the faster people will click, and the more they'll click. And so the, uh, the idea of taking time, just the capacity to take the time to step back and think about what you're writing about and talk to people at length over the course of several days or even weeks sometimes, that's a luxury that most news organizations really can't afford anymore. There's still a lot of that going on nationally and internationally, thank God, because the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, New Yorker Magazine, Atlantic Magazine. I mean, there's still a lot of really great long form journalism that is being done out there on some really important issues. But locally, I think that we have lost a lot of that, not just in Memphis, but in most sort of mid-sized cities where the staffs have been depleted and not only are we filling up print products, but we're filling up digital products. And so there's just more of a demand for more, more, more. And there's less fewer people to do it and less time to do it in. So I think one of the things that we have been trying to do, not just at the Daily Memphian and the Commercial Appeal, but also with the Institute for Public Service Reporting, which we founded a couple of years ago at the University of Memphis, is to build in some space for journalists to have the time and take the time to consider the news in sort of a longer contextual format. We're not rushing. Mark Pereski and I, who work for the Institute, we don't have to rush to put something up on the website every hour or twice a day or even once a week. We have the luxury to take the time to take a big issue, for example, COVID. Or last year, I spent a lot of time looking at the third grade reading gap
1: and yes I, I looked back at your series on that and that was that was fascinating and I had
2: I, I t- I've spent several weeks uh, sort of researching it reporting on it talking to people about it learning as much as I could about it and then a couple more weeks writing about it and uh, the the point is to give people to help people understand what's going on we're so inundated all the time with news and information it just washes over us from 24 seven different directions. And I don't think anybody really has the time or takes the time to put all the pieces together. What does this mean? We're getting this number today about COVID new cases. We're getting this number tomorrow about the number of hospitalizations and ICU beds. And we're getting this information about how COVID is um, changing and how the directions of what we should be doing and the symptoms that we should be looking for are changing. And just so much new information all the time. It's hard for anybody to sort of put it all in perspective and take the little pieces that we get and put them together. So we see the bigger puzzle. And that's one of the things that I think, the I think that's a value of journalism. People think of that, that in sort of historical terms, you know, we're guys who do long histories and biographies can take their time and sort of put all the pieces together. But I think journalists should do that too. And I think, um, it's necessary, even more necessary now than ever, because we just have so many sources of information coming at us all the time. And it's so easy for all of us to just react. We react to what we read, what we hear, what we see. And most of the time, we don't have the luxury or take the time uh, to put all those pieces together. And, and what's the larger context here? What is really happening?
1: yeah and it seems like uh, the covid-19 is one example of but of you could look at other examples Im- the immigration issue other things like that where uh, the uh, i'm i hate to admit that i'm probably watched too much cable news and and can become a junkie in that but it, after a while the, it becomes numbing because you you see yeah. that it's all uh, going for an either or and and COVID nineteen, the way the story is at least being presented, uh, in my view, on some of the cable news, it's either we go with a health perspective or we go with an economic perspective. It's an either or, rather than mm-hmm. a both and. And uh, the the uh, uh, one of the things I've struggled with from a, f- a faith perspective and philosophical perspective is dichotomy versus paradox. We mm-hmm. we can we can seem to move into immediately a dichotomy of it's got to be this way or that way. Rather yeah. than the paradox that both are there, and how do we how do we do some reconciliation? How do we make both work? The both end. Uh, are you seeing that too?
2: Yeah. That, well, I think that's not only true in the news world and in the media world, but obviously that's true in just about every facet of life, politically, uh, socially, and and religiously. I think that that is one of the shortcomings and has been one of the problems that. Uh, we've had with religion, not just recently, but over time, is that either or you're talking about either you're with us or against us. Either you believe what we believe or you are somehow mistaken or wrong or condemned. Mm -hmm. And I think that we have drawn those lines too tightly over the years with doctrine and uh, even theology. And and I think it creates um, this dichotomy that you're talking about, so, I, you know, I think in one, in some ways, the church, And when I say the church, I'm not just speaking about the Christian
1: mm-hmm.
2: denominations. Yes. I'm talking about sort of people of faith in general, who ascribe to some sort of, a, adhere to some sort of religious faith. And I think this is true for all faiths. Um, we all have a tendency to, to, to us and them. It's our faith against your faith or your lack of faith. And we start drawing those lines and creating these separate camps. And I think that what ends up happening and what has ended up happening in many denominations in recent years has been a further polarization of the people of God into these different camps along not just theological lines, but social and political lines. So now, uh, I I can't remember who did this study. It might've been Pew last year, but they showed that the number one uh, the, the easiest way to tell whether someone is a member of a particular church or denomination is to ask if they're a Democrat or Republican. Hmm. Because the Democrats tend to congregate, no pun intended,
1: <laughs>
0: in
2: certain denominations and in certain churches. Mm-hmm. And the Republicans tend to congregate in other denominations and other churches. And more that that stratification has been going on a lot more over the past 20 to 30 years. And a lot of that breaks down along political and social issues, obviously. So, uh, and I don't think that that's an American phenomenon. I think that's happening in many places all over the world. But I think it's especially true and relevant here for us because I think our politics has become a reflection of our religious beliefs and vice versa. I think our religious beliefs are sort of a reflection of our politics. And it's very, it's become more and more difficult to separate those two. Does that make sense?
1: It does. It does. And uh, what you were, you were saying earlier about the media uh, or the uh, being reactionary or reaction and uh, faith communities can come that way when issues come up. And obviously we've, we've been dealing with sexuality as an issue for the last 10, 20 years, the role of women in the church before then, and which is still an issue. Uh, there, you know, uh, and, uh, but, uh, you know, what you can discover is when you actually have converse, deeper conversations with people on all sides of the faith spectrum or philosophical spectrum, you'll find more common ground than you would uh, expect. Uh, yeah. when you, when you get more in depth about, and you learn that there are other, there are more than two sides to an issue. Most, uh, you look at the pandemic, we can think health and economy, but it's, it's affected faith communities, so it affects mental health, it affects children, as you, which has yeah. been a big issue for you, uh, and, and affects the music <laughs> and entertainment, sports, all those right. kind of things that Memphis, yeah. are part of Memphis' soul. The, uh, uh, it's uh, it's just, uh, there's a lot more to the story, and, and there's underlying issues too. Obviously, while it's improved our climate uh, crisis, it, it has had a, a a hampering effect on our debt crisis. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, there, but there are a lot of those aspects of the story you don't feel like are get, either getting covered or that we as consumers are not having the demand for because we can get stuck in the dichotomy.
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, you, you talked about uh, where can we have those conversations? Um, uh, I, I think maybe we used to have them in our neighborhoods, in mm-hmm. our communities, mm-hmm. um, or, or at the family supper table, right? But, um, You know, with TV and the internet and everything else, smartphones in everybody's hands, it's, you've lost more and more of that. So I think that, you know, one of the roles of the church can be and should be to provide a place, a safe space, to have a different kind of conversation, to have an alternative conversation. Remember, uh, many years ago, I used to cover the United Methodist Conference every year. Mm -hmm. I remember a lot of those church meetings every year. And one was the United Methodist Conference. Right, and locally we had a bishop named Bishop Kenneth Carter C A R D E R. he was here about 8 years and every year just at the beginning of every conference he would sort of have uh, a moment where he would talk to everybody and say listen <laughs> we're all here we all have differences of opinions on many things and we're going to be talking about those things and that's fine but let's remember who we are and whose we are before we get started, why we're here and who we are representing. We are here because we are people of God, people of faith. And we are here because of our belief in a particular part of that faith and that's belief in Jesus. Mm-hmm. So he, he, uh, he called it Christian conferencing. He said, mm-hmm. this is not just your average conference. We're gonna talk about po- politics. We're gonna talk about economics. We're gonna talk about social issues but we all are members of the same body of Christ. So let us that's the context here. That's where we are, and that's the kind of conversations we need to have. We need to have conversations, loving conversations, where we respect everybody's opinion and we listen to everybody's opinion, and we try to reach some sort of agreement or consensus based in that love and Those places are few and far between, and and I think that social media and the internet has just made it even more difficult. You cannot have those conversations on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or even Zoom. You just can't do it. It's just not the same. And I think the church, um, once we get through this pandemic, and and even now maybe, we need to find ways— and it's going to be tough this year because, you know, presidential election year, and it's going to be complicated by the disease and complicated by the social distancing and everything else. And so I think it may be more important than ever for the church to try to find a way to get people to just sit down and talk about this stuff. Let's mm-hmm. find ways. We all agree on certain things. We all agree that we love this country. We all agree that we want the best for our children and our children's children. We want the best for our loved ones and our neighbors. How do we get there? What can we do to make sure that this in the end all works out and we're not at each other's throats? It's going to be tough in the social distancing world, but, um, I think, I think the church can find ways to do that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, uh, you know, uh, I think if you look at Jesus, um, uh, most of his three years of his public ministry, a lot of it were just mealtime conversations <laughs> right. with friends and others. <laughs> so, but yeah, yeah, you know, speaking of the social distancing, and uh, yeah, I heard a different term. Maybe it's too politically correct, but I like it from a faith perspective: compassionate distancing uh yeah, yeah that uh, that i think gets into uh, how we how we are being compassionate to one another when we're uh, wearing the mask when we're distancing ourselves at the 6 feet apart uh but it's been a challenge and i, I what i see is the church in our case uh, Calvary, we we, it's funny, we, we've had meetings about adult formation, other things we, we've talked about. You know, it'd be nice one day if we had an online Bible study. It'd be nice one day if we were able to live stream our service. And then all of a sudden we had a one-week learning curve on, on doing it all. And uh, uh, so uh, in a lot of ways, these are gifts that will stay with us, that we'll, we'll use uh, probably from here on out to, in some degree or another. Uh, but you, you, uh, you, you've, you and your fellow reporters in the Daily Memphian have covered how a lot of the smaller churches are not blessed. We have a gentleman, uh, one of our younger young adult members named Noah Glenn, who's a podcaster and videographer, who's helping us with this conversation today and has helped us with our live stream. We're so blessed to have that kind of talent in our conversation. But a lot of smaller, older congregations. Don't have that, and you shared. uh, I think you may have done a story, or or there was a recent story about a webinar that some of the larger churches did to help the smaller churches with technology. Mm -hmm. Tell tell me about that. What's going on there?
2: Yeah, well, one of the products of this uh, pandemic locally has been the formation of the um, a bunch of leaders of faith who've gotten together to create sort of a task force, a support group for small churches. They're big church folks who have a lot of resources and a lot of high tech resources. And they are trying to work with each other to help smaller congregations and, and bodies of faith get through this and figure out ways to um, continue to worship and have Bible study and other gatherings virtually, at least in the short term. So they've offered all kinds of uh, webinars to help people to sort of walk them through the high tech stuff. Uh, to give them ideas about ways in which they can take what they have already, whether it's just a smartphone or maybe a simple laptop setup, um, and, and to create ways for congregations to get together on a regular basis, no matter how big or small. And one of the things that they found amazingly, I don't know if this is true at Calvary, but many churches are finding that when they do their web worship services, they end up having a lot more people in attendance online than they do in person. We
1: we I think found some that. of
2: that. Yeah, I think some of that's because there are shut-ins, people who can't get out, who wish they could but they can't. So they this gives them a way to connect. But I think there are also a lot of people who just, for whatever reason, they don't want to get up that early. They don't want to get dressed. They don't want to. They're a little intimidated by a formal setting, maybe. Who knows? But they just don't want to go to an actual building and sit in a worship service. But they're hungry for some kind of spiritual nourishment. So they're tuning in from their house. And and I think that that has given churches and other bodies of faith a real opportunity to connect with people who they might not otherwise have connected with. Uh, But I also think uh, the flip side of that to me is that yes, I think this should continue in some form, even when all of the social distancing restrictions are gone. And we pray that it happened sometime in my, in my lifetime, <laughs> if not all of ours. Um, but I do think that this also has been uh, instructive in some ways because I think it has shown us that the value of being together as a body in person Um And I think that worshiping together in person, communion, for example, I mean, it's just really difficult, if not impossible, to share communion virtually. Um, But just being together and doing that, that simple act, um, praying together in, in the same room, hearing the same message, singing together in the same room having Bible study in the same room. you know, I've done Bible study on, virtually on Zoom, and it's, it's fine, but it's just not the same. Right? It just doesn't have the same, it doesn't connect. You, know, you just don't connect with people the same way that you do when you're sitting across from them or next to them. So I, I think this has given all of us an opportunity to, to sort of value again what, we've ha- what we had and remember how important it really is to gather together but also to remember that there are people out there who for whatever reason can't or won't do that. And there are other ways to to connect with those folks.
1: Yeah, I I think what we may see is, uh, and we're already beginning to talk about, we may see a hybrid in the future where uh, obviously the the analogy that many of you folks in the journalistic community have used rather than a light switch, a dimmer switch in terms of us coming back. (laughs) And uh, how we may have, you know, multiple smaller services and uh, along with a live stream component and the, the live stream or some type of uh, video component may w- likely will continue because you're, you're right. We just built a whole new congregation out there. Yeah, right. Uh, but uh, yeah, it, it is going to be interesting to see what what's going to happen, uh, happen with that. Uh, you know, what, one of the things that I, I, felt, I felt during this time is that all of us faith communities have grappled our, at least the first week or, or month. We were right at, at, on the cusp of Holy Week, you know, when all this happened. And we were, we were grasping at how would we do live stream Holy Week services. Many of us innovated, you know, that, hey, the, the best way to do that is really involve the people at home. And some of the different things like we having an agape meal on Thursday night or doing things like that and, uh, you know, making the the home worship a part of the uh, integrated with the the live stream worship. So it, it was fascinating to deal with some of those issues, but we were so consumed by that that I wonder if we as faith communities have missed the bigger picture in Memphis and maybe all around the country, but especially here in Memphis, of unemployment, unemployed musicians, entertainers, uh, tourism industry, the restaurant industry, all those things. We've responded to some degree with food banks. We've continued our community breakfast. Uh, You had a wonderful article about the homeless ministry, about how some of the hotels or motels are even being used in that. Uh, so there've been some efforts here, but I think there's, it's so big and so pervasive. You know, I, I wonder if the church, we, we, we kind of got a little behind because we were so caught up in how do we worship first, right? And then right. we moved to that. What are you seeing in terms of the response to the social things related to the pandemic? Uh, where do you see the faith community working? Where do you see some good examples or some areas that we might still need to reach?
2: Well, I think it's been a, a slow response, honestly, and, and I don't think there's necessarily anything um, insidious or negative about that. I just think that's the nature of human beings. I think we were all in shock for a month.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, what,
2: What's happening around us, we didn't know what was happening or why it was happening. All this was so new. I think we were all sort of in a form of shock. But I think now that that shock is wearing off and now that we've begun to reopen, we are seeing how much destruction and damage there has been out there in the economy especially to low-income folks and no-income folks. And uh, I think that that's, that might be the most important thing that the church does in the coming weeks and months and years even, is to try to mobilize and figure out how to help those people, and especially kids. Mm-hmm. I don't think we have any idea yet. And we we may not know for months or years what kind of uh, trauma this has given all of the, or many of the kids out there, especially those kids whose entire support system were largely their support system was the public schools and the teachers in those buildings and the meals they got in those buildings and the regularity and the stability and the safety that they had in their built into their lives almost every day by going to school, that's been taken away. And we already know the impact of poverty and trauma on children and and how um, how much all of that has hurt children over the years. We, we now have biological and neurological studies that show the impact of that trauma. We don't know well, yet what kind of trauma this is going to have created or what kind of trauma it's going to add to their lives. So I think that that is an especially important thing for not just the church, but for all of us to start paying attention to and trying to figure out because you know, this is not over and it, it's very possible that we will not have school Again, next school year, or at least we won't have the regular school year like we've had before. We may have some combination of virtual learning and in person learning and trying to maintain social distancing by maybe staggering the days that kids go to school. I mean, there's all kinds of possibilities. But ultimately, it's still going to be um, there's still going to be a lot of kids out there who are going to lose the stability and the regularity and the support that they've had. And we uh, maybe maybe one of the things the church has to do or should do is to try to figure out how to support how best to support the schools and the school systems to help them help the kids and the families maintain some sort, some sort of structure. I don't know what that looks like. Um, but I do think that there are ways to do that. There are lots of organizations like the Urban Child Institute and Church Health, and other, other faith-based groups out there that will be looking to do those things. So maybe there's a way for this church network to to get involved with that. You know, um, I'll just give you one example of how this is impacting kids. Uh, I've got a friend who teaches up in Fraser, and she's elementary school teacher, first grade. And she had, there were three first grades in her building. She had one of them. So she had about 20 kids in her class, and she had the lowest of the first graders. They separated them into ability, high, medium, and low. She had the low group all year. And then when COVID hit and school closed, they tried to do online virtual learning like everybody else. Mm -hmm. And they found that most of the kids in the high group were finding ways to get online and continue their schooling. Some of the kids in the middle group were able to do that, and many were not. But in the lower group, the lower third of those kids, none of them were able to access Hmm. the online learning for whatever reason. And there could be all kinds of reasons. One might be just technology. One might be you know, stuff going on in the home. Um, Who knows? Nobody knows. In in many cases, she couldn't even get in contact with those kids. So I think if you if you think about that at large, if you think about maybe a third of our kids in the Shelby County school system have no support system or very little support system, what can we do to help the third, those third of kids out there and their families? And it's gonna take the schools can't do it by themselves. They just don't have the resources or the time. Right. So right. I think there have to be other groups that get involved in this. And that may be the most important thing this entire community uh, does going forward is how do we make sure that those kids don't just get thrown away and become even more traumatized than they already are.
1: Well, let me take a quick break and we want to continue talking about this in just a moment. I'm Paul McLean, associate director of Calvary Episcopal church in Memphis. And, uh, welcome again to our podcast. We're talking to David Waters, Assistant Director of the Institute for Public Service Reporting, the University of Memphis, columnist for the Daily Memphian, and journalist extraordinaire. David, yeah, we were just talking about, in your three-part series that you did last year, you brought us into it, I guess, as readers, talking about uh, about reading, third-grade reading levels, about how the, that should be an alarming statistic to us in a crisis, and seeing that in Memphis, and but you then you brought us into trauma, its effects on children. This is a year before the pandemic, and you're right; that's probably it's going to be exacerbated. But you, there were just a uh, again uh, talking about context. There's so many layers to you can of that childhood right. reading statistic, and you were uncovering an onion. And one thing that fascinated me about that was you talked about how top-down responses have been tried for a number of years from presidential administrations, Department of Education, even the Gates Foundation, other things, some initiatives that came kind of top-down. And those have not really been sustainable, but the ones that have been more bottom-up, even when they're funded by some of those other things, Mm-hmm. Seem to work or, or seem to be working in Memphis. The jury's still out, you're, you're saying. But tell us about that. Tell us about how you got involved in that story, uh, how that uh, came about. And then how, what are these layers of the onion that you peeled back on? Well, how much time do you have? <laughs> <laughs> well, we've got some. <laughs> There's a lot of layers. OK, well, uh,
2: let's, let's go. Actually, I got, I got interested in it, uh, number one, because my wife has been an elementary school reading teacher forever. Mm -hmm. And uh, seeing the struggles and the challenges that she faces and her colleagues face every day in the public school system, uh, just trying to help kids learn to read um, has always kind of fascinated me. Because I've also known, because I know her and other of her colleagues, how complicated it really is. And so I wanted to help people understand how complicated it is. Because I think a lot of folks, um, we've all been to school, we've all been to first grade, second grade, third grade. We all have kids in school. So we sort of think we know how it works. Most of our kids have learned how to read, we learned how to read. It doesn't seem that complicated. But in truth, it really is. In fact, it's one of the most complicated neurological tasks that we have to undertake as human beings. And one of the one of the things I did uh, when I wrote that article was start out talking about how uh, for the most part, every child learns to talk. Whatever language you are born into, whatever culture you're born into, you start babbling, you know, within a few months of your birth. And within a year or two, you're using words and then you're using sentences and you're understanding what people are saying to you, and you're talking back to them. Your brain is built to understand oral language. That's just the way it's constructed over eons of um, evolution. But writing has only been around for a couple, you know, a few thousand years. And our brains are not hardwired to learn to read and write. That's something that has to be taught. So if you think about it, A child born in France or a child born in the U.S. or a child born in the Congo has sort of a blank slate about reading and writing and speaking. But within a few months, they learn to speak that language within a few years for sure. But in order for them to learn how to write that language and read that language, that takes instruction. And that instruction has to be done in a certain way, but it also has to be done uh, it's called differentiated instruction. So in other words, every child doesn't learn to read exactly the same way at exactly the same pace. And so one of the complicated tasks for any teacher in any school is if you have 20 kids in first grade, you have 20 different ways of learning to read and you have 20 different little brains that are trying to figure it out and you have 20 different um life experiences and brain chemistries and uh, experiences with trauma and poverty and previous language experience. So my kids went to school and when they were in kindergarten, they already knew how to read because they'd grown up in homes where there was a lot of language. There was a lot of reading, being read to, a lot of books. Um, They heard more words than a lot of kids just by being around us because of our language skills. But then there are a lot of kids who don't grow up in those settings. They have very little interaction, verbal interaction. They have no interaction with the written word. Um, They might be put in front of a TV or sit in front of a TV, but you can't learn to read or write by listening to a TV. So their brains neurologically are not as, um, they're not as well constructed to learn how to read immediately. And then trauma and poverty have all kinds of negative effects on brain development as we have learned over the past few years. When a child is chronically under stress for whatever reason, maybe there's uh, violence in the home or violence in the neighborhood or other issues going on in that child's life, uh, poor nutrition, um, the neurological development is impaired and that affects the child's ability to pay attention, to remember, to focus, which is all very important in learning to read and write. And then when you get to school, some kids go to school age two, age three, and they're getting language skills. And some kids don't get there until kindergarten or maybe even first grade. And so they're delayed that way. And there are just so many complicated factors. And so when you have these top down very well-intentioned efforts at the national level, the state level, even the local level, to try to, you know, air quote, reform education because we have these huge reading gaps. A third of our third graders in Tennessee are not reading on grade level, and that's true generally across the country, which is a, a stunning number for a country as rich as we are. Why is that true? Well, when you're looking at it from the congressional level or the presidential level, or maybe even the level of a governor or state legislature, you think, well, there must be something wrong with the way we're teaching these kids. Well, there must be something wrong with these schools that they're going to and so let's test them and figure out what's going wrong well then you get these numbers that show that school a has a certain level of educational attainment and so school b has a much higher level of educational attainment and so you might make the conclusion that school a needs some reform needs new leadership new teachers stricter accountability standards more tests whatever but all of this sort of gets pushed onto the top of schools and classrooms and teachers and it doesn't really help them do what needs to be done and that is to help these kids who are growing up in these impoverished traumatized uh, low enrichment um, homes and help them learn to read long story short um, what we have found or what education folks are finding, especially in this community, is that the more you try to diagnose and treat the trauma and the poverty early as early as you possibly can, and that's even in the womb, the more likely that child is going to have a, a better start getting into school and staying at grade level as he or she goes through school. And that's so one of the things we've started in Shelby County is called the first eight.
1: Yeah.
2: It used to be that uh, what they really wanted to do was to try to figure out how to get kids ready for kindergarten. So they looked at preschool and that's really important too. But now they realize that getting a kid ready for third grade is just as important as getting the kid ready for kindergarten. And that's not just about what happens when they start kindergarten. It happens. It's about what happens when they they are born, (laughs) basically. So they're doing all kinds of... um, Efforts to, to get neonatal uh, uh, nurses working with pregnant moms. Um, they go visit them in the homes. They make sure the nutrition's good. They make sure that they've got um, sort of low stress ways to de stress, ways to keep you know noise down. I mean, they're just all of these various ways. Labaner is involved. Everybody is trying to find ways to help each child at each level. And each family deal with stress and trauma and poverty in ways that will help that child develop neurologically. So by the time the kid gets to kindergarten, kindergarten or third grade, they are mentally, physically, emotionally, and, and neurologically prepared to learn.
1: That's a long explanation. No, oh, no, it's a helpful explanation. And I, you know, I know that we as faith communities, one of the things uh, I've been involved in other states. Uh, uh, so many of our churches have done adopt a school programs before, uh, to link a church with a, a school, and you know those have have uh, borne some fruit. But I think what you're saying is we need to start earlier than that, and and it needs to be geared not only toward the school, but to the home. And, uh, and that's uh, a bigger thing to crack. And you, you mentioned in your article how there are a number of nonprofits that have cropped up around this uh, in Memphis. Many of them are based across town. You mentioned one, uh, ALL Memphis, All Memphis, Teacher Town USA, and I think several others. Tell us about some of their work and how, how that's happening with this bottom-up perspective that you're talking about.
2: Well, one of the things I'm not sure people in Memphis realize is that, is that Memphis
1: over the past 10 to 15 years has become
2: really the laboratory for urban education reform in this country. And a lot of that was because um, just who we are. We're one of the poorest big cities in the country, and we have a very high population of poor children in our public school system. And then um, so we've had a lot of issues with uh, scores and achievement and reading levels and so on. But in addition to that, we've had a couple of organizations come up in recent years that have tried to deal specifically with issues of trauma. And that includes the Urban Child Institute and the Ace Awareness Foundation, both headquartered in Memphis, which are dealing directly with those issues uh, in kids from age zero on up. And and on top of that, you had um, all of this new education reform going on nationally. George Bush's Leave No Child Left Behind, and then Obama came in with Race to the Top. And so you had a lot of federal funding suddenly become available, which filtered down to the state. And then you had people like Bill Gates get involved. Billionaires were getting involved in education reform. Bill Gates came to Memphis, I think it was maybe 12 years ago, 15 years ago, and and gave the city schools $100 billion. Now that was spread out over about 10 years. But his goal with that money was to help uh, teacher training and teacher improvement by helping teachers better prepare for some of these issues, not just trauma and poverty, but um, new new ways of teaching kids to learn. Because believe it or not, uh, if you go to college to become a teacher, an elementary school teacher, and you want to get a K through 8 license, first of all, just think about that. You get a license to teach K through 8. And the difference between teaching kindergartners and teaching 8th graders is there's light years between them.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: So in order to have somebody prepared to teach any and all of those, you, your education of that teacher is sort of a mile wide and an inch deep. Mm-hmm. And really, teachers, have, first grade, second grade, kindergarten teachers have not been trained directly in how to teach literacy skills to those kids. And so one of the things that they've tried to do in recent years with all of this reform money that's come in, is to help prepare those K through 2 teachers more specifically, more directly in learning how to read and literacy skills. And that's been a very good thing. Um, So all of these things have been happening in Memphis and you've had this, because of all this money coming in to try to help reform the system, you've had uh, a lot of entrepreneurs come into Memphis and it began with Teach for America, the organization that recruits college graduates from all fields and sort of sends them on a mission to urban areas and rural areas to help kids learn for a two or three year stint. It's kind of like a Peace Corps for teachers. And Memphis became one of the hotspots for that group. And over the past 15 years, we've had hundreds of uh, young people from all over the country come as part of the TFA program. They started a Memphis offshoot of that called Memphis Teacher Residency, MTR so because you had sort of this perfect storm of outside money coming in, federal money coming in, uh, entrepreneurial, philanthropic money coming in, and you also had all this reform going on at the same time, so you had a lot of organizations pop up, come to town or start here and say, you know, here's an aspect, here's one thing that we can help these schools do. So, for example, All Memphis, which is a co- started by a couple of uh, young women who were teachers at the Bodine School in Memphis, and that's kids with uh, difficulties like dyslexia, who have real serious neurological issues with reading. And there's a system that they use called Orton-Gillingham, which helps. has been helping uh, dyslexic kids and other kids like that learn to read for decades. They thought, well, here, maybe this will work for some of these other kids who are dealing with issues of trauma and poverty that has affected them neurologically. And so they're trying to sort of use that reading system and put that in some of our public and charter schools in low income areas and see if that will help. So it's really been a fascinating Mm -hmm. 15 years in Memphis. So many things have been happening, but that's one of the, one of the points we started out with was context, right? Perspective. Yes. you, you sort of know that all these little things are happening all the time. We get test scores all the time. We get reports from the state all the time about which schools are achieving and which aren't, which are going to be closed, and which are going to be taken over. And new charters are popping up and, and new superintendents are coming in. There's just so much happening all the time that changes. So I think it's really important for journalists, especially to, to take a step back, to take it all in, to try to, take all of the pieces and put them together and say, okay, this is what's happening and this is why it's happening. And this is the impact that it is having or isn't having. Um, And and I think that the more that we are able to do that, find ways to do that uh, locally, especially, it's going to help all of us understand better what's happening around us and why.
1: Right. That gives us kind of an insight into your name, the Institute for Public Service Reporting. Uh, how public service is related to reporting?
2: Well, you know, we've always thought. I mean, I think jur- journalism is a public service. You know, it's the it's the fourth estate. It's built into the first amendment of the constitution. Thomas Jefferson said, if you know, if it came down to whether he'd rather have a government without newspapers or a newspaper without governments, he'd, he'd rather much rather have a newspaper without a government. <laughs> Just to make the point that you know, a free press, how important it is to help keep people informed. But I think that it's equally important not just to inform people, but to help them understand the information, to put it in context and perspective. And so a couple of years ago, uh, Mark Pereskia and some other longtime journalists in Memphis, Louis Graham Otis Sanford, got together and decided there was a gap now in Memphis journalism that used to be filled by reporters like Mark Preskia, who could take weeks and months to look at a, one issue or one story and put all those pieces together for us. And that's sort of been lost. We call it, sometimes we call it investigative reporting. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we call it explanatory journalism. Sometimes we call it narrative journalism. But really it's the same sort of thing. You're just, you're, you're assigning a reporter, a journalist to become an expert in whatever topic he or she is looking into. So it was my job last year to become an expert in literacy and reading. And it's Mark's job to become an expert. He's working on nursing homes. And so we we are allowed to take the time, weeks and months, to build our understanding and to talk to as many people as we possibly can and read as much as we can and learn as much as we can so we can sort of translate that for readers. And I, and I think that that's really important. We're trying to grow the Institute, but, you know, there are other ways of doing that. MLK50 is a website that was started by Wendy Thomas, former commercial appeal columnist. Yeah. And she takes a lot of time to look at uh, in depth at social justice issues, um, and and there are other little things that are popping up like that. Um, they're trying to take the place of what we've lost because of the for-profit model of the newspaper has has been failing, and and I think that's just very encouraging. I think that we are finding ways, smaller ways, to support and sustain local journalism and to provide the public service that we have for a long time.
1: We're coming up toward the end of our hour. I wanted to actually end with maybe a question you would often ask at the beginning, uh, maybe to tell us just a little bit about your own spiritual journey and how you became a religion reporter. I, I understand you you're a religion education reporter, and now knowing your wife's background, I can see some of the education coming yeah. through. But, but yeah. uh, what about your faith journey and, and becoming a religion reporter? How did that come about?
2: Well, she was. She's responsible for that too. Oh, okay. <laughs> I think I came a, I became a journalist because I was so intrigued by politics, and I'm a child of Watergate and yeah. Woodward and Bernstein, and I was always um, enamored with them and Washington Post and all that they did. And and so I guess I was I got into journalism to cover politics and government, and then along the way I did a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Uh, I'd get after every couple of years, I'd get bored with whatever I was writing about and I'd ask for a new beat and it, and it kept me fresh and it was interesting. And then, uh, in the late eighties, I decided I needed another new beat. So I looked around and I had not covered religion. It looked very interesting. I'm in Memphis to buckle the Bible belt. What could be better to cover than, uh, than church and faith. So I asked for the beat and they gave it to me. And, uh, It was unlike any other beat I'd ever had because, you know, if you cover education or politics or government, um, there's a place you go. There's a focal point. You go to the school board or you go to city hall or you go to the state capital and there are people there and you talk to them and you learn what they're doing. And it's all fairly focused. Your efforts are fairly focused for you by meetings and events and, and bodies. But with religion, where do you go? I mean, there's thousands of denominations and tens of thousands of bodies of faith and hundreds of thousands of people of faith. And so where do you start? And so I I was kind of thrashing around. I couldn't figure out how to cover this thing called religion, even in a place like Memphis and heard this story. And I don't know if it's true or not, but it's a good story. Uh, Many, many years ago, a young reporter for the New York times was assigned to cover the Johnstown flood. And so he was, he took a train to Johnstown and uh, did all his reporting and he wanted to impress his editor. So uh, back then you had to file your story. If you were distant, you had to file your story by telegraph, a paragraph at a time. So he wanted to really impress his editor. So he filed his first paragraph and it said, Johnstown, PA, amid a flood of biblical proportions, God sat on a hillside and surveyed the destruction he had wrought. And he sent that in. And a few minutes later, he got a response from his editor, and it said, forget the flood, interview God. (laughs) And I I love that story because it's just so, you know, it's such a comeuppance for any of us who think we're really great writers or try to be. We're just trying to convey information as clearly as we can, and that's the important thing. But it's also, it helped me uh, get a kind of a, a, insight into what I really needed to be doing as a religion reporter not covering churches or religion or denomination, but covering faith, mm-hmm. covering God. Right. And how people feel about God and what they do because of their belief in God and how they do church and how they do school and how they do politics and how they do business, how they are trying to be a community. And all of that is based on their, a lot of that is based on their faith. So I can cover that. I can ask them about that. Mm-hmm. And that's what I tried to do as a religion reporter. And that's when I really got interested in it, because then I was able to cover everything, really. there I could cover sports. I mean, I, I covered everything through the lens of faith and people of faith.
1: Yeah, And
2: that's what, uh, to me, has been endlessly compelling and fascinating about that topic, is that it does allow me to cover everything, because I think that, our faith informs just about everything that we do.
1: Yeah. And what's interesting, too, I think, in your way of covering faith, covering religion, is is also that bottom-up perspective that you were talking about in the in the uh, child literacy story. I think the same uh, is the way you approach faith, and maybe we should all approach it, is uh, looking for the lay perspective, looking where things are bubbling up in terms of your own spiritual journey or in terms of the journey of a church or... One some of the best things that happen in church world or faith world is when uh, uh, a little a small group, an ideal pops up and it becomes a ministry. It becomes a meaningful spiritual journey for all involved and uh, some new connections are made. And yeah. sometimes that doesn't happen by talking to the leaders of the denominations. That talk <laughs> you, you have to get on the ground floor. right <laughs> We're any two or more. That's it. That's it. Well, I think our hour is about up and uh, this has been a wonderful conversation. Uh, David, I've enjoyed uh, visiting with you. And uh, it was so uh, this is, will mean so much to our folks who are so looking forward to hearing you on April Fool's Day for our yeah. preaching series. And uh, delighted that you've taken the time to be with us today. I'm Paul McLean, Associate Director of Calvary Episcopal Church. Thank all our uh, listeners today for joining us and hope this has been a meaningful conversation to you. And I hope that we will all be challenged maybe to do something for children in Memphis uh, and do something for, for each other in the days ahead. Thank you all for joining us.
0: The Calvary Podcast Lenten Preaching Edition is produced by Noah Glenn of Perpetual Motion. Our theme music was composed by Spence Bailey. Special thanks to Robin Banks, Director of Communications at Calvary, and Heidi Rupke, Lenten Preaching Series Coordinator. And thanks to you for listening. If you're curious about Calvary Episcopal Church, we are an eclectic bunch of Christian people who don't all think the same thoughts or dress the same way or vote for the same candidates or even believe all the same things about the mystery of God and what it means to be human. But we do believe that we need each other because of our differences, not in spite of them, and that God calls us into unity, not uniformity. Subscribe to the Calvary Podcast at calvarymemphis.org podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Visit Calvary in person at the corner of 2nd and Adams in the heart of downtown Memphis, Tennessee.